called his name Jesus. And we're looking at five Old Testament prophecies on the coming of the Christ. And this is a very famous one uttered by Micah about 700 years before Christ came when Christ being born in Bethlehem. So let me read this for you. Marshal your troops, O city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. The word of the Lord. The question I want to ask today is, are great people born, or are they made? Think of that for a little bit. All of us have seen these great people who have risen to standards of greatness, whether titans of industry, Andrew Carnegie or Rockefeller, or great politicians like Winston Churchill, or great athletes, Tiger Woods, who even from a young age could hit a golf ball like no one could hit a golf ball. Were these people who were great born or made? I heard the story of Wilma Rudolph, who some of you may know as the American sprinter, who won three gold medals in the 1960 Olympic Games. She was called in Italy the tornado, la gazella negra, the black gazelle, because she was so fast, faster than anyone else. But what you may not know about Wilma Rudolph was that she was born prematurely at 4.5 pounds. And she caught infantile paralysis as a result of polio when she was a young child. She recovered but wore a brace on her left leg and foot, which had become twisted as a result. By the time she was 12 years old, she had also survived scarlet fever, whooping cough, whooping cough, chicken pox, and measles. In fact, her family drove irregularly from Clarksville, Tennessee to Nashville for treatments to, traiten, uh, to straighten her twisted leg from uh, ages six to nine. Are great people born or made? Well, we're not here to discuss the sociology of greatness. We are here to discuss the question of a savior. Is a savior born or made? The answer is yes. He is not only made, but he is also born. And in fact, the Savior we are going to discuss is so great because he was not only born and also made, but he was the one born and made to make others great. We are going to discover and talk about three things. The first is trying to understand this passage, which is uh, uh, from a long time ago. We're going to look at a people who exchanged someone great for something small. And then we're going to look at the God who sent someone small to do something great. And then we are finally going to look at the Savior who takes small people and makes them great. That's a little bit of a tongue tie. Let's go ahead and untwist that. First, a people who exchanged something great for someone small. 
Uh, verse 1 says this, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. What is going on here? We need to understand that Micah lived in uh, about 740 B.C. to 690 B.C. During the decline of Israel, in which there was a great political upheaval. Though Israel had experienced peace, many of you know that Israel had fractured into two particular areas. Israel, which were the ten tribes of Judah, uh, ten tribes of Israel, and then the two tribes down in the bottom part of Judah where Jerusalem was. And they were experiencing upheaval. Great other powers were coming to the forefront, specifically Assyria, which was encroaching upon Israel's land. And they found themselves surrounded by the Assyrians who were coming against them, threatening to take away their land, their people, and they were asking the question, where is God? In fact, history would record that the Assyrians would go ahead and take over Israel and carry over 50,000 people into captivity and sending 100,000 people fleeing from their lives to the southern part in Judah. And so they're asking the question, where is God? God, what about the covenant that you made with us? Remember that you would be our God and we would be your people. Indeed, you would give us your law and you would dwell with us in the temple of God. That we would be the only people on the face of the earth that your presence would be with. Where have you gone? And amidst of that comes Micah and others, Isaiah and Hosea. They were called the prophets. Now, a way to think about prophets, where prophets were kind of like what we would call attorneys. They were people that came to bring a lawsuit against the people by God. I don't know if anyone here has ever been served by a lawsuit, but it's not a great feeling, is it? When someone comes to you and says, hey, somebody has a beef with you, so much so that they're taking it to court. Imagine if you were served with a lawsuit by God. And God takes the prophet Micah and he comes and he serves them with a lawsuit. And what is this lawsuit? What's the nature of this grievance? See, for the first half of this century, Israel had been prosperous. There had been no enemies. They were doing well. But what we see is Micah brings a lawsuit showing how that they have taken the goodness of God and they've corrupted it. Micah's book reads like a litany of offenses against God and people idolatry, persecution of the poor, corrupt religious practices, uh, corrupt uh, prophetic leadership, corrupt religion. Micah is prophesying, bringing a lawsuit against these people. And so he says to them in this prophetic voice, marshal your troops, O daughter of troops, is actual, the, the actual translation, because they will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. You see, he's saying, go ahead and put together your army if you can try these daughters of troops because they're going to be ineffective against the Assyrians. In fact, they will strike the king with a rod and the people will be given up. See, all of what the Israelites are saying is, wait a second, God, you've abandoned us. But God is saying, no, 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 before I abandon you, you abandoned me. In fact, I'm just... I'm just serving the lawsuit that we agreed upon when there was a covenant, when I told you that I would bless you and be your God, but you must obey me. You must put me 
first in your life and you haven't done that. And as a result, there is a consequence. There are always consequences for our actions, aren't there? I remember in 2005, me and a couple partners decided to invest in some real estate property over in Cape Charles. And so we found a dilapidated apartment building, a three apartment building, and we decided to build some luxury condominiums on it. Because everything was going great with real estate, wasn't it? I mean, it was a sure thing. So myself and a builder and a couple other guys, we started building these condos in Cape Charles and we got the real estate bug. I mean, we needed to buy more. And so we bought some property down in Virginia Beach. In fact, there was one time when we owned five properties in a row in addition to these three apartments over in Virginia Beach. Now, then the tremors started to occur that all was not well with the real estate market. But my response was simple, damn the torpedoes, full steam ahead. And then just like that, the market ground to a halt. The party was over. There were no buyers to be found. And I was swept up in a tide in the real estate market that there was no way that I could control. And I asked, as I asked the question, how could this be possible? It was a sure thing. All you had to do was buy. I realized that I was as much a part of the real estate bust and bubble as anyone else. Because I had overpurchased, I had neglected key business principles. And here I was to reap the fruits of my labor. See, I had gotten cocky. I believed that I was a self-made man. And for the next five years, dealt with the consequences of trying to extricate myself from a difficult situation. See, it's easy to look at Israel and see what they have done, but we have to examine ourselves, don't we? In relation to our own lives, do we see ourselves as the architects of our own success? Self-made men and women, captains of our particular industry or influence. Every now and then, we get the tremors. Maybe a letter from the doctor. Maybe a letter from our banker. Maybe a note from our boss. But damn the torpedoes, full steam ahead. I can make this thing called life work. But let me ask you the question, to whom do you give the credit for your existence? Your heart will beat over 35 million times this year. Are you responsible for each one of those? You will draw in much needed oxygen that is managed by a complex ecosystem with billions of different variables that allow us to breathe. Were you responsible for them? You will neither get too hot or too cold because of the simple fact that the Earth is 23.5 degrees on its axis, neither allowing us to burn up or freeze. Did you set the Earth on its foundations? And miraculously, your body will fight off millions of millions of viruses every year through the antibodies that it produces. Did you create them? You see, there is a debt that everyone owes to their creator. Israel is simply a microcosm of humanity itself. That we owe a debt to the one who made us. And at one point, we will be judged for how we have lived our lives. Hebrews 9.27 for justice is appointed for every man to die once, and after that, to face judgment. It was Jefferson who said, Indeed, I tremble when I reflect that God is just, and that his justice will not sleep forever. 
See, the Israelites, they had it all wrong. They thought that their enemy was Assyria. Their enemy was not Assyria. Their enemy was God himself who was against them. And so we, like Israel, must acknowledge that we also have sinned against the Creator. We have exchanged something, someone great for something small. We have traded God for idols. And so we must bear the consequences of our sin. But thank goodness it's called the Gospel, the Good News. Because that leads me to my second point. The one who makes, the God who makes someone small to do something great. For Micah, as explaining that the Israelites will go into captivity, continues on and he says this, But O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Now Bethlehem, as we all know, some of us know, is this little town. In fact, we sang about it, didn't we? Oh, little town of Bethlehem. Just a couple miles south of, uh, of Jerusalem, it was a little town. Its name Bethlehem means house of bread. And it was also called Ephrathah. So it's actually talking about the same uh, place. Ephrathah means fruitful. So it was this fruitful house of bread. That was its name. But aside from that, it really didn't have a whole lot going for it. Its claim to fame essentially was that King David had come from it. A small, sleepy little town that had a claim to fame that David had come from it before he had become great. You ever driven into a small town where it says, home of whoever? Used to live in Stanton, Virginia, home of the Statler brothers. Stanton's claim to fame. I don't know if anyone's heard of Butcher Hollow, Kentucky, home of Loretta Lynn, the coal miner's daughter. But you see, this was a little town that people wanted to get out of, not to go back into. And David just happened to be the little country boy who made good. And yet, we are seeing that from Bethlehem is the very place where a king will come. Micah calls him the ruler, which is even different than the king. The Hebrew word for king is melech. But this ruler is the one called the mashah which can be one that is even greater than a king. Sometimes they talk of the stars themselves as the mashal. This ruler will come, one from of old. This word in the Hebrew, of old, is the word olah, which means eternity. From one will come through this dusty little town who is from of eternity. And his entry point into the world will be this little sleepy town called Bethlehem. Now everyone, when they heard this prophecy, must have thought of David. Because they knew that David came from Bethlehem. They knew that David was the ruler of the people. And they knew that David was once a shepherd. In fact, in Psalm 78, he's called the shepherd of Israel. So this prophecy evokes David. But they were thinking of David, the great ruler. See, they didn't know David until he stepped on the scene and he flung the stone, right? And he brought down the big giant. They were thinking a great king is going to come. One who's eight feet tall and can defeat everyone. They didn't understand that the very nature of why he was coming from Bethlehem was that he would start small. They were looking for the self-made God. They weren't looking for the God-made Savior. But this something small 
would start and it would grow big. Indeed, to the very ends of the earth. Look at verse 4. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. How can something start so small to grow so big? On Friday 11th, March 2011, approximately 43 miles east of the Oshika Peninsula of Tohoka, Japan, an undersea earthquake occurred about 20 miles below the surface of the water, lifting the floor about five to eight meters higher, pushing the water up, starting what we call a tsunami. Now the thing about tsunamis, if you're out in the middle of the sea, you can't recognize them. Because the wave of a tsunami as it starts is only about 12 inches high and about a mile or three or four long. In fact, if you had just been on the sea, you wouldn't have felt anything. If you had been 30 miles inland, you wouldn't have seen anything either, just maybe a little blip in the ocean coming along. But unfortunately, the way tsunamis work is they get closer and closer to the shore and the bottom of the sea begins to go higher and higher. There's nowhere else for the water to go. And so it raises. And so this giant wave, by the time it hit Sendai, Japan, was 133 feet high, crashing down upon the city, moving six miles inland. A small tremor that has ultimately proven to be one of the most powerful events to ever touch the world, moving very slightly the Earth's axis. You see, what was meant in that for destruction, God meant for salvation. The people of Israel, they wanted a great warrior. God sent a baby. The people wanted an army, and God sent a savior. See, as we look back, here in 2011, we're able to see the prophecy fulfilled that this man and this woman, Joseph and Mary, going to a little town where no one would take them in, being born in a musty little stable, a little helpless baby, none recognizing him save for some lowly shepherds out in the field. And yet, with the coming of Christ, the tremors began. He never went more than 200 miles from his home. He wasn't educated, never wrote a book. He had no credentials except himself. His followers, a small band, public opinion turning against him, handing him over to the Romans to be crucified like a common criminal as thousands before him had been. And yet this one, this small one, could not stay dead. And three days later, rose from the grave. And the wave of Christ, of the gospel, has been traveling forth since. Here we are, 6,000 miles away from Jerusalem, 2,000 years later, and we are talking about it. But you see, the prophecy has not yet totally been fulfilled. His name has not yet been made great to the ends of the earth. He has not brought peace on the earth in the sense of physical peace. In fact, one of the most dangerous things you can do in many areas of the world is to convert to Christianity. See, many still don't recognize him. So my question for you is who is the Jesus that you are looking for? See, you may still be in phase one. 
You're still a self-made guy. I don't need anyone else. I can take care of this myself. But maybe you've gotten dinged up enough where you're on the hunt for a savior. But this Jesus, I don't know, he's, he's too lowly. He's too simple. I want a shiny God. I want a, a big God. I want a God that's like a titan. Not a simple carpenter that says to love your enemies. Not one who dies on a cross. So all too often, what do we do? We settle for less. Or we make one. A shiny warrior, just like the Israelites. Making a nice golden calf. Here is your God. Who's your Savior, my friends? Is it your bank account? Is it a God, a metal God that you've created? Something that you build upon and put in again and again? The one who will be your security? The one who will protect you from the onslaught of the world? Is it your bank account? Or maybe it's a person. The one that you hide under. The one you go to when things are dangerous. The one who will keep you safe. The one who will bring you peace with God. But you see, this Savior is the one who has been born. Born in Bethlehem. We are looking for another Savior, but God sends His Son. He is the one that we've been looking for. I said that all, the Savior is not only born, but He's also made. We must look to the one that God has made. The born, this one called Jesus in Bethlehem. But we must also look at the one who takes small people and makes them great by how he lived. You know, we've all seen these vestiges of the greatness of Christ, but we have to ask this question. I mean, we really have to ask the question, why did he come this way? I mean, why not go big? You know, that's the way to do things. You make a big splash. Surely God could have done better than a stable in Bethlehem. No, this is part of God's plan. This is God's design. But we must ask the question, why did he come this way? The only answer that I can come up with is that he came small to make us great. See, the God of the universe doesn't need approval from mankind. The God of the universe does not subject himself to public opinion. Checking polls every now and then. God doesn't care what we think of Him. But God cares what He thinks of us. You see, the truth of the matter is humans are glory hounds. Myself included. We're glory hounds. How do I know this? Whenever you get a pack of pictures, who's the first person you look at? Me. Right? New York Telephone Company, they did a study once of uh, uh, the most used word in telephone conversations. You ready what it was? I, followed by me. See, we're obsessed with ourselves. But God came small to make us great. Why? Look at verse 4. When this one is come, excuse me, verse 3. Therefore Israel will be abandoned. Until the time when she who is in labor gives birth, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites, and he will stand and shepherd them. Now, we need to understand that to be sent from Israel, to be sent into exile, as what was happening here in this time, was to be sent from the presence of God. Remember God? I will take you out of Egypt. 
And I will give you a land flowing with milk and honey, and I will dwell with you. But if you are not faithful to me, I will send you from me. I will exile you. And so that was exactly what was going on with Israel being sent from the presence of the Lord because they had broken faith with him. But God spoke of a time when they would come back, when they would be reunited with the presence of God. And that is what will happen when this one Jesus comes. Because of him, the brothers, his brothers, will return. See, Israel is just a microcosm of being cast out. Remember what I preached on last week, Genesis 3.15? And when they sinned, God cast them out of the garden, away from the presence of God. But when this one who comes, his brothers will return. See, this is a key passage because it tells us this one who is born, whose origins from eternity will be a man. He will be a human and he will bring his brothers back. Why must he do that? Why must he become a man? Because there is only one way to bring his brothers back to God. He must take their place. He who is near to God must be sent away. So that those who are far from God must may come near. Jesus told that he was the good shepherd, remember? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep, no, no. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and he runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. You see, the shepherd, the true shepherd, will do anything for the life of the sheep. And Jesus, the true shepherd, who saw a people in danger, condescended to come to earth, to become a man, and to die in our place, that he may bring us back into the fold. He became small to make us great. This passage contains one more astounding thought. It's at the very end that we see that he will bring all of his brothers back and they shall dwell in uh, securely, and he will be their peace. Some of us know this word, peace, shalom. It's a greeting in, ancient near, uh, in the ancient Near East, still in Israel today, when you greet someone, you say to them, shalom. We translate it in, uh, into uh, English as peace, but it's more than that. It's, it's a great, great concept. It was Cornelius Plantiga who put it this way about the concept of shalom. It's the, web, the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets called shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. 
a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creature in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. So when you greet someone with shalom, you're saying, I wish for you the way things ought to be. And the truth of the matter is, we wish for many people in our life that they would experience the way things ought to be. But Jesus, this one who brings his brothers from afar, does much more than wishing. For it does not say that he wishes shalom upon his people. It says, and he shall be their shalom. And he shall be the one that makes things the way they ought to be. Christ is Savior because He is the bringer of Shalom. And so my question for you that I finish with is this. Have you found Shalom? Have you found the one, not who just wishes for you Shalom, but the one who actually can bring it? We see part of this prophecy fulfilled, but we haven't seen it in its entirety. We know that there is still a portion to come when this one who came as the lamb will come as a lion. And he will make peace on earth, goodwill to all through whom his favor rests. But for even now, he promises peace and shalom in our hearts as we wait for him. I did not plan for it to be the peace candle today. But was it not Jesus before he went to the cross that said, peace I leave with you. My shalom I give to you. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. If you have not found shalom in Jesus Christ, it is for you and for all who would call on him. And you may say to yourself, but I'm so small, I don't have anything to give. I have no present to give that you have not yet understood what Bethlehem is all about. Because Jesus comes to inhabit things that are small and forgotten and of no merit. The wonder of Bethlehem is it's you and me, the one in whom the Prince of Peace comes to reign, if you would open your hearts to Jesus Christ. Look to the Savior God sends, not to the Savior that we want. Jesus is a Savior because He is the only one born and the only one made to make us great. Let us pray.